Chapter Fifteen of the Andes and the Amazon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Andes and the Amazon by James Orton. Chapter Fifteen: Sea Cows and Turtles' Eggs, The Forest, Peccaries, Indian Tribes on the Lower Napo, Anacondas and Howling Monkeys, Insect Pests. Battle with Ants, Barometric Anomaly, First View of the Amazon, Babish. The 30th of November was an exciting day on the monotonous Napo. We fell in with numerous sea cows sporting in the middle of the stream. They were greatly disturbed by the sight of our huge craft, and, lifting their ugly heads high out of the water, gave a peculiar snort as if in defiance, but always dived out of sight when fired upon. The sea-cow is called vaca marina by the Spaniards, peixe-boi by the Brazilians, and manatee in the West Indies. It has no bovine feature except in its upper lip. The head and skin remind one of a large seal. In many respects it may be likened to a hippopotamus without tusks or legs. It has a semicircular flat tail, and behind the head are two oval fins, beneath which are the breasts, which yield a white milk. The flesh resembles pork, with a disagreeable, fishy flavor. Today we anchored at several playas to hunt turtles' eggs. Our Indians were very expert in finding the nests. Guided approximately by the tracks of the tortugas, as the turtles are called, they thrust a stick into the sand, and wherever it went down easily, they immediately commenced digging with their hands, and invariably struck eggs. In four nests, whose contents we counted, there were one hundred and thirty-two, one hundred and fourteen, one hundred and twelve, and ninety-seven, but we have heard of one hundred and sixty eggs in a single nest. The turtles lay in the night, and in pits about two feet deep, which they excavate with their broad webbed paws. The eggs are about an inch and a half in diameter, having a thin, leathery shell, a very oily yolk, and a white which does not coagulate. The Indians ate them uncooked. We use them chiefly in making corn griddles. Here, as throughout its whole course, the Napo runs between two walls of evergreen verdure. On either hand are low clay banks, no rocks are visible and from these the forest rises to a uniform height of seventy or eighty feet. It has a more cheerful aspect than the somber, silent wilderness of Baeza. Old aristocrats of the woods are overrun by a gay democracy of creepers and climbers, which interlace the entire forest, and, descending to take root again, appear like the shrouds and stays of a line of battleship. Monkeys gamble on this wild rigging, and mingle their chatter with the screams of the parrot. Trees as lofty as our oaks are covered with flowers as beautiful as our lilies. Here are orchids of softest tints, flowering ferns, fifty feet high, the graceful bamboo and wild banana, while high over all countless species of palm wave their nodding plumes. Art could not arrange these beautiful forms so harmoniously as nature has done. The tropics, moreover, 
are strangers to the uniformity of association seen in temperate climes. We have so many social plants that we speak of a forest of oaks and pines and birches, but there variety is the law. Individuals of the same species are seldom seen growing together. Every tree is surrounded by strangers that seemingly prefer its room to its company, and such is the struggle for possession of the soil, it is difficult to tell to which stem the different leaves and flowers belong. The peculiar charm of a tropical forest is increased by the mystery of its impenetrable thicket. Within that dense, matted shrubbery, and behind that phalanx of trees, the imagination of the traveler sees all manner of four-footed beasts and creeping things. Tropical vegetation is of fresher verdure, more luxuriant and succulent, and adorned with larger and more shining leaves than the vegetation of the north. The leaves are not shed periodically, a character common not only to the equator, but also to the whole southern hemisphere. Yet there is a variety of tints, though not autumnal. The leaves put on their best attire while budding instead of falling passing, as they come to maturity, through different shades of red, brown, and green. The majority of tropical trees bear small flowers. The most conspicuous trees are the palms, to which the prize of beauty has been given by the concurrent voice of all ages. The earliest civilization of mankind belonged to the countries bordering on the region of palms. South America, the continent of mingled heat and moisture, excels the rest of the world in the number and perfection of her palms. They are mostly of the feathery and fen-like species. The latter are inferior in rank to the former. The peculiarly majestic character of the palm is given not only by their lofty stems, but also in a very high degree by the form and arrangement of their leaves. How diverse, yet equally graceful, are the aspiring branches of the jaguar and the drooping foliage of the cocoa, the shuttlecock-shaped crowns of the ubusu, and the plumes of the jupachi, forty feet in length. The inflorescence always springs from the top of the trunk, and the male flowers are generally yellowish. Unlike the oak, all species of which have similar fruit, there is a vast difference in the fruits of the palm. Compare the triangular coconut, the peach-like dady, and the grape-like acai. The silk cotton tree is the rival of the palm in dignity. It has a white bark and a lofty flat crown. Among the loveliest children of flora, we must include the mimosa, with its delicately pinnated foliage, so endowed with sensibility that it seems to have stepped out of the bounds of vegetable life. The bamboo, the king of grasses, forms a distinctive feature in the landscape of the Napo, frequently rising eighty feet in length, though not in height, for the fronds curve downward. Fancy the airy grace of our meadow grasses, united with the lordly growth of the poplar, and you have a faint idea of bamboo beauty. The first day of winter, how strangely that sounds under a vertical sun, was Sunday, but it was folly to attempt to rest, where punkies were as thick as atoms, so we floated on. It was only by keeping in mid-river, and moving rapidly enough to create a breeze through our cabin, that life was made tolerable. 
a little afternoon we were again obliged to tie up for a storm not a human being nor a habitation have we seen since leaving coca and to-day nothing is visible but the river with its islands and plains and the green palisades the edges of the boundless forest not a hill over one hundred feet high are we destined to see till we reach obidus fifteen hundred miles eastward were it not for the wealth of vegetation all new to trans-tropical eyes and the concerts of monkeys and macaws oppressively lonely would be the sail down the napo between its uninhabited shores but we believe the day though distant will come when its banks will be busy with life toward evening three or four canoes pulled out from the shore and came alongside they were filled with the lowest class of indians we have seen in south america the women were nearly nude the men there was only one had on a sleeveless frock reaching to the knees made from the bark of a tree called lanchama all were destitute of eyebrows their hair was parted in the middle and their teeth and lips were dyed black they had rude pottery pecari meat and wooden lenses to sell like all the napo indians they had a weakness for beads and they wore necklaces of tiger and monkey teeth they were stupid rather than brutal and probably belonged to a degraded tribe of the great zaparo family with darwin one's mind hurries back over past centuries and then asks could our progenitors have been men like these men whose very signs and expressions are less intelligible to us than those of the domesticated animals men who do not possess the instinct of those animals nor yet appear to boast of human reason or at least of arts consequent on that reason i do not believe it is possible to describe or paint the difference between savage and civilized men it is the difference between a wild and tame animal and part of the interest in beholding a savage is the same which would lead every one to desire to see the lion in his desert the tiger tearing his prey in the jungle or the rhinoceros wandering over the wild plains of africa on the morrow our falcon-eyed indians whispered kuche long before we saw anything williams went ashore and came upon a herd of peccaries killing two the peccary is a pugnacious fearless animal it is not frightened by the noise of firearms and when wounded is a dangerous foe but captured when young it is easily tamed it has a higher back than the domestic hog and cleanlier habits an odoriferous gland on the loins and three-toed hind feet we preserved the skins for science and a ham for the table the rest we gave to our crew and fellow voyagers who devoured everything even the viscera they sat up late that night around their campfire cooking peccary meat part they parboiled in a pot and some they roasted skewered on sticks which slanted over the flames the rest they cured with smoke for lack of salt the meat though rank is palatable but not equal to Macau, which we served up the next day. We had not passed the mouth of the Aguarico, leaving behind us the Christian Quitus and the peaceful Zaparos. Henceforth, the right bank of the Napo is inhabited by the Mazanes and Iquitos, while on the left are the wilder Santa Marias, Anguteros, Oritos, and Orejones. The Orejones, or Big Ears, enlarge those appendages to such an extent 
that they are said to lie down on one ear and cover themselves with the other. This practice is now going out of fashion. These Indians receive their names, orejones or oregones, from the Spaniards, on account of this singular custom of inserting discs of wood in the ears to enlarge them. The like practice prevailed among the tribes on the Columbia River, Oregon. They trade in hammocks, poisons, and provisions. The Anguteros, or Putumayos, have a bad reputation. They are reported to have killed and robbed Sarsaparilla traders coming upstream. Nevertheless, we kept watch only one night during the voyage, though we always anchored to an island, and between Coca and the Amazon we did not see twenty-five men. Equally rare were the savage brutes. Not a jaguar showed himself, and only one anaconda. The anaconda, or water boa, Eunectes murinus, is larger and more formidable than the boa constrictor which lives on the land. It has a hideous appearance, broad in the middle, and tapering abruptly at both ends. We did not learn from the natives that anacondas over twenty feet long had been seen on the Napo, but specimens twice that size are found on the Amazon. Land boas do not often exceed fifteen feet in length. Gangs of the large howling monkeys often entertained us with their terrific, unearthly yells, which, in the truthful language of Bates, increase tenfold the feeling of inhospitable wilderness which the forest is calculated to inspire. They are of a maroon color. The males wear a long red beard, and have under the jaw a boiny goiter, an expansion of the osioides, by means of which they produce their loud, rolling noise. They set up an unusual chorus whenever they saw us, scampering to the tops of the highest trees, the dams carrying the young upon their backs. They are the only monkeys which the natives have not been able to tame. Vast numbers of screaming parrots and macaws flew over our heads, always going in pairs and at a great height. Groups of gypsy birds were perched on the trees overhanging the river, and black ducks, cormorants, and white cranes floated on the water or stalked along the playas. But one form of life superabounded. From the rising of the sun to the going down thereof, clouds of ubiquitous sand flies filled our cabin, save when the wind was high. As soon as the sand flies ceased, myriads of mosquitoes began their work of torture, without much preparatory piping, and kept it up all night. These pests were occasionally relieved or assisted by piums, minute flies that alight unnoticed, and squatting close to the skin, suck their fill of blood, leaving dark spots and a disagreeable irritation. Our hands were nearly black with their punctures. We also made the acquaintance of the montuca, a large black fly whose horny lancets make a gash in the flesh, painless but bloodletting. All these insects are most abundant in the latter part of the rainy season, when the Maranon is almost uninhabitable. The apostrophe of midshipman Wilberforce was prompted by sufferings which we can fully appreciate. Ye greedy animals, I am ashamed of you. Cannot you once forgo your dinner and feast your mind with the poetry of the landscape? Right welcome was the usual afternoon squall which sent these pests kiting over the stern. On Wednesday, we fell in with a petty Sarsaparilla trader with two canoes bound for the Maranon. He was sick with fever. Sarsaparilla, 
written salsa parrilla in brazil and meaning bramble vine is the root of a prickly climbing plant found throughout the whole amazonian forest but chiefly on dry rocky ground on the morning of the seventh day from coca we passed the mouth of the curarai the largest tributary of the napo it rises on the slopes of the Lyonganati mountains and is considered auriferous it is probably derived from curi gold seeing a hut on the banks we sent an indian to purchase provisions he returned with a few yucas and eggs the day following we were attacked from a new quarter stopping to escape a storm a party went ashore to cut down a tree of which we desired a section it fell with its top in the river just above our craft when lo to our consternation down came countless hosts of ants essitants myriads were of course swept downstream but myriads more crawled up the sides of our canoes and in one minute after the tree fell our whole establishment from hole to roof was swarming with ants we gave one look of despair at each other our provisions and collections and then commenced the war of extermination it was a battle for life the ants whose nest we had so suddenly immersed in the napo refused to quit their new lodgings as we were loosely dressed the tenacious little creatures hid themselves under our clothing and when plucked off would leave their heads and jaws sticking in the skin at last the deck was cleared by means of boots slippers and towels but had the ants persevered they might have taken possession of the boat today we saw a high bank called in quichua pucaurcu or red hill consisting of fine laminated clays of many colors red orange yellow gray black and white this is the beginning of that vast deposit which covers the whole amazonian valley it rests upon a bed of lignite or bituminous shale in a coarse iron cemented conglomerate the latter is not visible on the napo but crops out particularly at obidos and para the indians prepare their paints from these colored clays our santa rosans seem to have little tact in fishing still their spears and our hooks gathered not a few representatives of ichthyic life in the napo the species most common belong to the genus pimelodus or catfish tribe below the curarai the sandbars yielded turtles eggs of a different kind from those found above the tracajá they were smaller and oval and buried only six or eight inches deep thirty in a nest december ninth passed early this morning the mouth of the mazan four huts at the junction today we noticed the anomaly first observed by herndon from papallacta to the curarai the rise of the mercury was regular but on the lower napo there were great fluctuations at one time both barometer and boiling apparatus with which we made daily and simultaneous observations unanimously declared that our canoes were gliding upstream though we were descending at the rate of five miles an hour the temperature is decidedly lower and the winds are stronger as we near the amazon december tenth our last day on the napo in celebration of the event we killed a fine young doe as it was crossing the river it closely resembled the virginia deer at nine a m the indians shouted in their quiet way maranon it was as thrilling as talata to xenophon's soldiers we were not expecting to reach it till night 
being deceived by Villa Vicencio's map, which, in common with all others, locates the Curaray and Mazan too far to the north. We halted for an hour at Camindo, a little fishing hamlet claimed by Peru, and then hastened to get our first sight of the Amazon. With emotions we cannot express, we gazed upon this ocean stream. The march of the great river in its silent grandeur is sublime. In its untamed might, it rolls through the wilderness with a stately, solemn air, showing its awful power in cutting away the banks, tearing down trees, and building up islands in a day. Down the river we can look till the sky and water meet as on the sea, while the forest on either hand dwindles in the perspective to a long black line. Between these even walls of ever-living green, the resistless current hurries out of Peru, sweeps past the imperial guns of Tabachinga into Brazil, and ploughs its way visibly two hundred miles into the Atlantic. At a small island, standing where the Napo pays tribute to the monarch of rivers, mingling its water with the Hualaga and Ucayali, which have already come down from the Peruvian Andes, we bade adieu to our captain and cook, who, in the little canoe, paddled his way westward to seek his fortune in Iquitus. At this point, the Marañón, for so the natives call the upper Amazon, does not appear very much broader than the Napo, but its depth is far greater, and there are few sandbars. The water is always of a turbid yellow, while the Napo, though muddy during our voyage, is usually clear. The forest, moreover, on the banks of the Marañón, is not so striking as on the tributary. The palms are not so numerous, and the uniform height of the trees gives a monotonous, sea-like horizon. We arrived at Pebas December 12th, ten hours after leaving the mouth of the Napo, and a month and a half from Quito. The first individual we met addressed us in good English, and proved to be Mr. Hawkswell of Birds and Insects, who has resided thirty years on the Amazon. His house, the largest and best in town, though but a roofed stockade, was generously placed at our disposal, and the fatted calf, an immense turtle, was immediately killed. To us, after the transit of the Andes and the dangers and hardships of the wilderness and the river, it seemed as if we had reached the end of our journey, though we were over two thousand miles from the Atlantic. Pebas is situated on a high clay bluff beside the Ambiacu, a mile above its entrance into the Marignon. Excepting Mr. Hawkswell, the Peruvian governor, and two or three other whites, the inhabitants are Indians of the Orejones and Yagua tribes. The exportations are hammocks, sarsaparilla, palo de cruz, and urari. Palo de cruz is the very hard, dark-colored wood of a small leguminous tree, bearing large pink flowers. Urari is the poison used by all the Amazonian Indians. It is made by the ticunas on the putumayo, by boiling to a jelly the juices of certain roots and herbs, chiefly of the strychnos toxifera, though it does not contain any trace of strychnine. Tipped with urari, the needle-like arrow used in blowguns will kill an ox in twenty minutes, and a monkey in ten. We have reason to congratulate ourselves, wrote the facetious Sidney Smith, that our method of terminating disputes is by sword and pistol, and not by these medicated pins. But the poison appears to be harmless to men and other salt-eating animals, 
salt being an antidote. We were not troubled with sand flies after leaving the playas of the Napo, but the mosquitoes at Pebas were supernumerary. Perhaps, however, it was a special gathering on our account, for the natives have a notion that just before the arrival of a foreigner the mosquitoes come in great numbers. Many of the Indians are disfigured by dark blotches on the skin, the effects of a cutaneous disease very prevalent in central Amazonia. Here we first notice the singular habit among the children of eating clay. This habit is not confined to the Otomaks on the Orinoco, nor to Indians altogether, for Negroes and whites have the same propensity. Mr. Hawkswell found it impossible to restrain his own children. Bates ascribes the morbid craving to the meagre diet. This may be true to some extent, but it is certainly strange that the extraordinary desire to swallow earth, chiefly unctuous clays, is found only in the tropics, where vegetation is so rank and fruit so abundant. End of chapter 15